around the year 1616, George Slauson was born to Richard and Anne Slauson in the village of Southwark in Surrey, England. Twenty years later, in 1636, George and his brother Thomas boarded the ship Jonas and immigrated to the American colonies. George began his life with his brother in Lynn, Massachusetts, but then soon moved to Sandwich, Massachusetts, and shortly thereafter to Stamford, Connecticut, which had increased to a population of about 59 families by 1642. Over the next few decades, George would purchase land, raise a family, serve as an officer in the church, serve as a representative in the General Assembly, and generally play an active role in civic affairs. For instance, he helped to negotiate a land treaty with the Native Americans in 1640, and then again in 1645, and finally in 1667, which was signed by Taphance and Pinahay for the Indians, and by George Slauson and several others for the whites. He was also a Puritan. One History, entitled The First Puritan Settlers, states Slauson was a firm Puritan and a good man. He was favorably, favorably noticed by Cotton Mather, who was also a Congregationalist. Slauson died in February, on February 17, 1694, leaving behind a wife and several children. Among those he left behind was John Slauson, who had been born in 1641, John, in turn, begat Jonathan Slauson in 1670, who begat David Slauson in 1713, who begat another David Slauson in 1735, who fought in the Revolutionary War and who begat Moses Slauson in 1780, who begat William Nelson Slauson in 1822, who begat William Gabriel Slauson in 1845, who, as a 59-year-old, begat Loyal Nelson Slauson in 1904, who begat William Loyal Slauson in 1944, as well as Barbara Jean Slauson in 1948, who in 1973 begat me. To spare you from doing the math, that means I'm 50. In other words, George Slauson, who crossed the Atlantic in 1636 on the boat Jonas was my great, 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 that's eight, grandpa, my mother's side. That, friends, is one half of my family tree, my genealogy. There are some interesting tidbits along the way, such as those who fought in the French and Indian War, as well as the Revolutionary War, as well as the Civil War, those sides. Speaking of... The other side of my family, the Lehman side, my father's side, 67 Lehmans would fight for the Union Army, and 22 would fight for the Confederate Army. What do you think that says about me? Leave that for another day. Well, it was only this last year that I discovered my own family tree went back all the way to 1636. And I confess to you, when I first heard that, I thought to myself, well, that makes me about as American as it comes. But as soon as I say that, about as American as it comes, you sense, don't you, a little bit that I've kind of switched into a political register? What do you mean, Jonathan, when you say about as American as it comes? that you possess kind of some sort of ownership to this place? Uh, maybe more than those who might cross the border, whose own ancestries reach deep into Mexican history or Central American history. Genealogies, make no mistake, are deeply political documents. Genealogies and of families build Nations. Nations are built on families, such as those 59 families in Stamford, Connecticut in 1642. And those family stories, in turn, tell the histories of our nations. Genealogies determine who is who and who deserves what. Is this land mine? Is this house mine? Do I deserve 
these things? Is the inheritance mine? And these are the things that have been contested at least since Genesis 4. This is mine. This is my land. These are my people, not you. Now, the Lehman's fighting for the north and the Lehman's fighting for the south represented one such contest of what it means to be an American. Indeed, if I said to you that because I descend from George Slauson, I'm very American, what might the descendants, the ancestors of Top Hans and Pinochet say about their genealogy? How far back into America does their genealogy reach? Well, there's a can of worms. Now, around the country today, preachers are preaching, they're preparing for Christmas sermons. Yet, what's interesting to me is how Matthew's gospel prepares us, or how it prepares us for the Christmas story. Matthew offers us a genealogy. Turn to Matthew 1 in your Bible. If you're using the little black Bible there in the pew, you'll find it on page 807. The first thing that Matthew wants us to know before we learn about the singing angelic host and the manger and the virgin birth is a much older story about who begat who, beginning with Abraham and culminating in the person of Jesus. And of course, if we, if we were to flip to chapter 2 and encounter the story of Herod, we would, we would see that this was a political genealogy indeed as Herod felt found profoundly threatened by it, so sought to exterminate all the baby boys born in Bethlehem that day. Some of you are wondering, Jonathan, are you seriously going to preach a genealogy leading up to Christmas? Yes, I am. Not only that, I'm going to read it. Here we go. Matthew 1, 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. Let's, let's, let's be honest, I, I had to practice some of these names before I came and read it to you. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliad, Eliad the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ, Messiah. All the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. If you look at pages 8 and 9 of your bulletin, you'll see I've divided the lessons of this genealogy into three different sections. Things that we learn about our Bible, things that we learn about Jesus, and things we learn about ourselves. We start with three lessons that help us know our Bible's Better. Number one, the New Testament depends on the Old Testament. I trust you guys know what it's like. Do you watch a, a series and then season one ends and then you have to wait for the next one and then when the next one comes along several months later, you're like, oh, wait a second, what was happening? And, and gratefully, there's, there's often a recap, right? So, so it's something like 
Last season on Wind Calls the Heart, Elizabeth Thatcher felt for the young constable, Jack Thornton. We're like, oh yeah, that's right. Elizabeth and Jack are starting to, right? Well, when we turn to the New Testament, that's exactly what we see. We begin with a recap. Look at verse 2. You remember those stories about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? It says, yeah, John preached about them a year or two ago. Uh, And then that sweet story of Ruth in verse 5. Oh, wait a second, though. We're we're not whitewashing history. Uh, We learn about David and the fact that he lived with a stolen wife of Uriah. You see that in verse 6. And so the recap goes as we read through all of these names. If we know our Old Testaments, they're hearkening to mind certain memories of how we got to here season two or whatever you want to call it. And of course, this recap is a genealogy. And genealogies remind us not just of what happened, like the previous season, they tell us who somebody actually is. Friends, do you want to know who Jesus is? Do you claim to follow Jesus and love him? Well, if you do, you're going to read the Old Testament because it's going to tell you the national history of Israel beginning with Abraham and moving through David and then eventually failure into exile, but leading to this one. Do you want to know who I am? You need to know a little something about American history. Do you you want to know who Berhan is? Maybe know a little something about Uh, Ethiopian history. Do you you want to know who Lisa is? Maybe know a little something about German history. Do I remember, were you born in East Germany? East German, that's interesting. Have you asked her about it? What's that story like? How does that contribute to who she is? Who all of us are? Well, who is Jesus? Read the Old Testament. The New Testament depends on the Old Testament. Here's a second Know Your Bible Better lesson. Number two, the Bible's genealogies don't just tell us who someone's family is, but who the nation of Israel is, answering not just, uh, who's my great-grandpa, but who are my fellow citizens? I've already touched on this point some. In the Bible, family trees and family histories are the stuff out of which national trees and national histories are Made. In creation, God organizes our lives into families, but then with the fall in the Tower of Babel, He organizes our lives into nations. The table of nations in chapters 10 actually happens after chapter 11's Tower of Babel. With the diffusion of humanity, He organizes our families into nations, and He uses those nations to protect and care for a people in a fallen world. Uh, Human history, whether political, cultural, moral, religious history, plays out on the landscapes of families and nations. Or to put it a different way, families and nations are the principles which organize, give order to civilization itself. God established it this way. Way. They therefore are worth preserving. And sure enough, the cultural wars of our own day, which dominate social media and so many of our con- conversations, are contests about what a family is or who the nation is. Whether we're talking about LGBTQ or America's race problem or immigration and so much more, these are all fights over what a family is in some sense or what a nation is. Family and nation provide the building blocks of civilization itself. Get these things wrong and your family and nation will crumble. Indeed, a a nation that undermines the family is a nation that will not long survive. It's not without reason, therefore, that the cultural wars are so hot. Matthew begins with a culture war. The nation is occupied. Who do we trust? The zealots or capitulators like this Matthew, the tax collector? 
So it's interesting, isn't it, that Matthew the tax collector begins his story by reaching back into the very Jewishness, the very family history of Jesus, taking us all the way to Abraham. That said, he's affirming that. At the same time, he's saying, don't get too excited about Jesus' Jewish roots. Look at lesson three. The New Testament is where Old Testament genealogies go to die. Because Jesus will build a family in a nation through regeneration, not procreation. Now again, if you're a reader of the New Old Testament, you'll, you'll start marching through the Old Testament and you'll encounter all of these genealogies. Genesis filled with them. Ruth ends with it. Chronicles, again, is filled with these genealogies. And then you turn the page to page one of the New Testament. You encounter this genealogy and you think, oh, okay, it's basically the same. It's like the Old Testament. It's a genealogy. I guess it matters who my parents are. But then if you keep reading through the New Testament, you discover there are no more genealogies. There's another version of Jesus in Luke. But other than the ones culminating in Jesus, there are no other genealogies in the New Testament. It's as if the New Testament is where the genealogies of the Old Testament go, as I said, to die. Why? Uh, flip a couple of chapters to chapter 3 of Matthew. Right after promising the kingdom of heaven, John warns Israel's leaders not to take comfort in the fact that we have Abraham as our father. We're somebody. Abraham is my great, 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 great grandpa. John's like, God can raise up, look at verse 9. God can raise up children from Abraham from these very stones. Stones do not give birth to children. God can do it. And that's how he's going to recreate a family, a nation now. By supernatural birth, not by natural birth. Like children appearing from stones. Turn to chapter 12 of Matthew. Uh, the people say to Jesus, your mothers and brothers are outside. Your mother and brothers are outside. At verse 50. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. In other words, friends, make no mistake, Jesus shows up and calls for a revolution. The very Jewish Jesus shows up and calls for a revolution. He's almost like a presidential candidate who shows up and says, <clears throat> when I'm elected, the natural-born citizens will be cast out and the foreigners will be made citizens. Or anyone who repents of their sins and declares their allegiance to me. Imagine a presidential candidate saying that today. Wouldn't get very many votes. Of course, never has the candidate been the Son of God himself. If God's Old Testament nation and kingdom grew by procreation, by genealogies like this one at the beginning of Matthew, his New Testament nation and kingdom would begin and build and grow by regeneration. All this is why the New Testament is where Old Testament genealogies go to die. No longer will a man's seed or a soldier's sword build God's nation, but God's spirit will. What matters is not physical descent, but repentance and faith. Christianity begins with conversion. And friends, very simply, very practically, that's why if you think about coming to join this church and you're sitting down with an elder, the elders will ask you, so what's, what's the gospel? Who is Jesus Christ? We're not going to say, hey, can you show us your genealogy? Can you tell us who your parents are? Rather, we're going to say, can you tell us your testimony? Tell us how you came to know Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter who your parents are. That's 
friends, why we are a Baptist church. We only baptize believers, not the children of believers. For as much as we share sweet fellowship with our Pado baptist friends, you're wondering, Jonathan, seriously, are you using this sermon as a defense of believers' baptism? In fact, I am. Why? Precisely because the genealogies of the Bible stop here with Jesus. And now we're all just looking to be united to Jesus by faith. Do you want to be numbered among God's covenant people? What counts is being united to Christ. Nothing more. Not who your mom and your dad are. In fact, you might say there is a New Testament genealogy. Revelation 20. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And if anyone's name was found, not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The New Testament genealogy depends on whoever's name is written in the book of life. And it includes only those people who have trusted in Christ and followed after him. So to the kids in the room, it's important for you to understand whether or not your parents' names are written in the book of life. What counts for you is whether or not your name is written in the book of life. And you're not added just because your parents are there. You're added when you repent of your sins and follow after Jesus. That's the whole thing. Not what house you grow up in. And kids, this is something you can do today. This isn't something you have to wait for grown-uphood, adulthood to do. Jesus is calling you to trust him today. Follow after him. If you're here this morning as a non-Christian, this is what distinguishes Christianity not from all other religions, but from many. Those born into a Muslim family in a Muslim nation are Muslims. Those born into a Hindu family in a Hindu nation are Hindus. Those born into a Jewish family in a Jewish nation are Jews. Those born to two Christian parents are not Christian. And they do not live in a Christian nation. Because the only Christian nation in the Bible, according to the Apostle Peter, is the church, who calls us a holy nation. Jonathan, seriously, are you now talking about Christian nationalism? Yes, I am. Merry Christmas. Why? Because this is the last genealogy in the Bible, and nations are built on genealogies. We join not because of being born into a certain place, but by conversion, by repentance and faith. And God places his name there, baptizing them in the name. I want the Jesus name tag. I'm team Jesus. I'm family Jesus. I'm citizen Jesus because I'm baptized into the name. The Father, Son, and Spirit, which we do through repentance and faith. Friends, I hope you see the larger point here. If, if the New Testament depends on the Old Testament, and if the Old Testament culminates in the person of Jesus, that means the whole Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. That's what Matthew's genealogy right here, that's what the recap last season on, four centuries ago on, Matthew's genealogy is telling us. That brings us to our second set of lessons. Know Jesus better. Lessons you see in your handout. Number one, Jesus fulfills all the promises given to the people of Israel since Abraham. The Old Testament is filled with amazing promises, such as he promises to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. Jesus fulfills that. He promises David, I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. Jesus fulfills that. Uh, Through Isaiah, he promises to Israel, 
going into exile. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Jesus fulfills this promise such that all of that gets fulfilled in him. And if you're in him, you get all of that. Come to that in a bit. In other words, friends, this should dramatically impact the way you read your Bible. Jesus becomes the lens through which you read your entire Bible. The temptation when you go back and you read the Old Testament is to say, okay, this is about me. These promises are given to me. And if I obey, I, well, then I get this. Isn't that what's happening? Prosperity gospel preachers do this. Christians in their quiet times do this. Uh, we, we look at things like Deuteronomy 28. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of the ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the, the young of your flock. What's a prosperity gospel preacher do with that? Well, well what, what am I tempted to do with that? When I'm flipping through the Bible and I'm reading that in my quiet time, what do I see? Well, I see this connection between obedience and blessing. In fact, it's a, it's a rock-hard connection between obedience and blessing. This text, Deuteronomy 28, is teaching us there is, if, if you want blessing, you must obey. If you disobey, you will receive not blessing, but curse. Uh-oh. Does that mean I really have to work hard at obeying in order to receive blessing? Well, no, because in Deuteronomy 28, the story keeps going, and Jesus t- or Moses tells them, you're going to disobey. But here's the thing. Another son of Israel will come, and he will perfectly obey, and he will win all the blessings. So read Deuteronomy 28 through Jesus. Unite yourself to Jesus, who fulfills all the promises and all the commands of God and wins the blessing for us. Number two, Jesus is the new Adam. I think this is interesting. We're going to get a little nerdy here for a second, okay? I think this is interesting. Look, Look at the very first words of our passage. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Okay, if you had your Greek Bibles, and you were to read that in your Greek Bibles, this is what you would read. Biblos geneseos. Kids, what does Biblos sound like a little bit? Bible, yeah, which, which means book. Geneseos, what does that sound like? It sounds like Genesis. Turn to Genesis in your Bible. Look at chapter 2. Look at verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Okay, that phrase, if we were reading our Greek Old Testaments, written a couple of hundred years before Jesus was born, what do you think our Greek Old Testaments would say? These are the generations. Any guesses? Biblos geneseos. Isn't that interesting? Uh, This phrase is repeated nine more times in the book of Genesis. If you go and you read, get online. Why was the first book of Moses called Genesis? Uh, Encyclopedia Britannica and a hundred other sources will say, well, because Genesis in English means beginning, and therefore Genesis is the beginning, and that's why it's called Genesis. Not true. It's called Genesis. We call it Genesis because of the Greek translation of the word right here, geneseos, which means genealogy or generations of, you see? So again, what is Matthew doing by putting the highlighter of his mouse over biblos geneseos, hitting copy, bringing it to the very first words of the New Testament and hitting paste? Why is Matthew doing that? Because Right here in Matthew 1.1, we have a new creation, a new Genesis, a new Adam. Doesn't just go back to David or Abraham. Matthew's like taking us all the way back to Adam. Isn't that cool? I think that's pretty amazing. Friends, this is why Christianity only makes sense if you have reached the end 
of yourself. A, a, a new beginning appeals only to the person who has reached the end of the old and found it wanting. You, you can't get control of your sin. You can't get control of your addiction. The pattern of ruining relationships, your loneliness, your depression, your weakness, your guilt and shame, uh, your despair, perhaps in yourself, perhaps at the world as you look around. Why, why all these battles? Why all these divorces? Why all of this fighting and overdosing into all this brokenness and hurt and death and addiction? A new Adam steps in. A light stepping into the darkness, bringing forgiveness, bringing healing, kind of new shoots of green in a charred landscape of volcanic ash. It's all gray and black. What's that new green right there? Christianity is about exactly that. Uh, let, 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 me, let me put it this way. If you think you understand Christianity, and yet your life is so bad, you're wondering about ending it, you haven't yet grasped Christianity at all. Because Christianity, as it were, begins right there when the old is exhausted and finally brings no peace and no salvation and no victory. Christianity offers a big bang right there in your dark and broken universe. A new Adam who succeeds in all the places you and everyone around you failed. That is what Matthew's genealogy is telling us. The Old Testament, its ways didn't work, but it was all coming to him. Here's the genealogy. He's rooted in all of that, but he's going to win all of that. A new Big Bang, a new birth, a virgin birth, right here. Building on the old. And friend, all you have to do now is hold on to him. That's the only requirement. So, friend, did you come to church this morning thinking about, okay, I want to learn something about myself and help myself and, you know, kind of feel better? Or did you come to church saying, I want to learn about him, what he's like and who he is? Are you beginning to see that the Bible, the revealed word of God, points to him and is about him? And how much time do we spend thinking about ourselves when this genealogy tells us, as I said, the whole Old Testament points to him and that the difference between the first Adam and this Adam is that he was perfect because he finally is God. Deserves all of our worship. That brings us to lesson three about Jesus. Jesus is God with us. God has orchestrated all of history so that we might see the glory and the beauty of the Son. I think we see a hint of this in verse 17 in its use of the number 14. Did you notice that? 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile, and 14 from the exile to Jesus. The 14, the number 14 itself actually represents the name of David, according to the Hebrew practice of gematria. DVD is, is 464, and that creates 14. So even in the numbers, Matthew uses saying this, this points back to David, and here is the new David. That's who this is. Now, more generations actually existed than just 14. Nonetheless, we see Matthew's point. He is saying God has orchestrated all history so that we might behold the glory of the Son, who is the center of all things the beginning and culmination of all things, the reason for why this universe exists. Uh, this genealogy does not offer us a full Christology, a full doctrine of the Son. Nonetheless, it prepares us to see that the only one who could fulfill all of these things, be what Abraham was supposed to be, what Adam was supposed to be, what David was supposed to be, what Isaac and Jacob were supposed to be, but weren't. And so it throws in those sinful episodes 
to remind us of that. The only one who could do this would be the Son of God Himself. All these promises and commands are fulfilled in Him. Last night, I watched some of Taylor Swift's Eras Tour movie. It is intense. Now, I'll say nothing more about Taylor Swift in order to defer to the politics of my own home, dominated by teenage double X chromosomes, as it is. Other than her concert reminded me of a concert of one of my favorite bands growing up, U2. I remember watching U2 3D in 2007 at the Natural History Museum's IMAX Theater. Anybody else? Anybody? Okay, Brent. I remember watching that and thinking, my goodness, that is a worship service. And at the center of this worship service is, of course, Bono, the, the lead singer of the band. And the way the crowd was just in exaltation and all the cameras are working to make you focus on Bono. And you think, my goodness, that's amazing. I want that. I want to be like that. You see? Well, in this passage, Matthew uses the technology available to him, a genealogy, in order to say, look at him, look at him, look at him. Uh, meanwhile, U2 3D is using lights, cameras, dancers, and backup singers to say, look at him, look at him, look at him. Right? And our hearts are drawn to it. Someone who is larger than life, who in their beauty, in their power, embodies all of our hopes, as well as a triumph over the loneliness and anonymity and existential angst of our lives. We, we see it embodied in that person. Friends, our hearts were clearly made to worship. Yet in our pride and foolishness, that instinct either turns inward on itself to worship ourselves or it curves, curves outward and fastens itself to the wrong object. Yet this genealogy, as I said, the Bible's final genealogy tells us who we should worship. God has directed history to teach us this lesson. And so just consider for a second that what, what happens between page one of Matthew's gospel and, and the very last page of Matthew's gospel? Jesus would go on to live a perfect life. He would die on the cross to pay the penalty of sin for sinners like us. He would rise from the grave and then he would commission his disciples to take this news of who he is and what he's done to all nations. The one on whom history converges dies for us, pays the ransom for us, fills us who are empty. And even though Matthew says, look at him, look at him, look at him, all these dancers and lights surrounding him, he himself does the exact opposite. He goes up in a manger. Not what we're going to celebrate this season. He, he dies on a cross an object of ridicule and shame. It's remarkable so that we might have life, so that we might be filled. Human history depends on genealogies for the race to continue, but the unspoken, of, the unspoken tragedy of genealogies is that they in fact depend on death. One generation dying to give life to a Another generation. Yet in the opening of the book of Matthew and reading about the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Christ, we stumble upon the death of death, the death of genealogies. That's why genealogies go to the New Testament to die, because Jesus is the one who would conquer and kill death. Friends, where will we find life, new creation, 
born again, big bang life, only in Christ. Driving to church this morning, I, I said to my daughters, there, there's nothing I can do when I stand up and I, I open this 2,000-year-old book and talk out of it. There is nothing I am capable of doing that will have any of the power in myself and in what I'm doing that we witnessed in a Taylor Swift concert. The power of that concert is astounding. What we do when we gather to read and preach from God's Word is no match. And the ability to impact a stadium of people and make people literally fall down and weep. Just, we, we don't have access to that kind of technology or power in ourselves. And yet, that's what God ordained for us to do. Why? Because the Holy Spirit and the Word of God are more powerful than Taylor Swift and Bono and any other king or movie celebrity or athlete in history. And so we gather week to week in this obscure location, as obscure and strange as a manger, and we watch the new people of God be formed, come to life. Isn't that what a church is? Well, that brings us to our third set of Lessons, know yourself better lessons. Number one, church, we are a new genesis, a new creation, a new family, a new body politic or, or, or nation. The old is past, the new has come, says Paul. And I'm, I'm speaking to a congregation set in Washington, D.C. It should be clear to you that our politics are different because our primary national identity is a heavenly identity and our citizenship in that heavenly nation should determine and shape what we do with our earthly citizenship. It should condition those political hopes and expectations. Now, I would not say that being a Christian should cause you to adopt one particular policy towards southern American, the southern American border and the problem of illegal crossings. I don't think a Christian can say, my immigration policy comes directly from heaven. I don't think the Bible tells us exactly what position to hold on Israel and Hamas or Russia and Ukraine. I do think how we think about the nations, their borders, and their people should be impacted by the fact that we no longer believe that any of these nations will ever offer an eternal harbor of safety and peace. The only perfect and lasting genealogy, the only perfect family and nation, is the one born of heaven. Everything else is relativized. No nation, not America, nor any other, will finally succeed. The entire Old Testament culminating in this genealogy teaches that in the end of genealogies. Civilization might depend on families and nations, as I said earlier, but thanks to our sins, civilization will at best limp along. Always about to fall over. That's what it does. Only the Son of God himself can create a new civilization and new nation. And where do we see that new civilization and nation? Well, in our church gatherings. We see it right here. And in those other places that I prayed about around the world this morning. And those realities condition what we do and what we don't do, what we talk about and what we don't talk about when we gather. As a church, and as we're thinking about the election season coming upon us over the next year, this is going to change what we might as humans ordinarily think to talk about and where we're going to ask you to put your hopes and not put your hopes. Our heavenly citizenship and genealogy should also impact how we view our work. Remember, Adam was placed in the garden to work it and keep it. So what do we do? What do you do vocationally? Well, like our politics, our work remains subject to the curse. It, it faces the futility of life in this world. Therefore, our goals at work should be different now that we are a chosen race. Borrowing language again from Peter. Our new identity should impact how we go to work and what we're doing there. I remember when I worked at a magazine as an editor before feeling called into ministry. I lost interest in the magazine and, and its 
work and didn't do as good of a job as I should have done. Yet, we're looking back, do you know what I wish I had done? I wish I had done an A-plus job as that magazine editor. Why? Well, because my boss knew that I was a Christian. And I wish that for testimony's sake, which is always our primary concern as a Christian, making disciples, I would have used my work to serve that work. That doesn't change the task of editing. As an editor, you're still trying to put sentences together and string them along in helpful, creative, easily readable ways. That's the same, but why am I doing that now? Why are you doing what you do at work? With what aim? For old creation's sake or for new creation's sake? Which creation are you living in at work or in the home? Raising your children. Why are you raising them? What are you teaching them to do? Do you have old creation objectives, original Adam creation objectives, or do you have new creation, new Adam objectives and what you're seeking to do in your children's lives? A second lesson. Number two, Christian, you're not just an I, but a we. Because being a Christian means joining the genealogy of this book by Adoption. We've been adopted into Jesus' genealogy. The family tree has become our family tree. It's almost as if I were to say, hey, you remember old Uncle Jeconiah? What a rascal, huh? And Grandpa Zerubbabel? And he was something. Friends, that is our genealogy now as Christians, which is why Paul can call us the Israel of God in Genesis Six, becoming a Christian, in other words, is not just about becoming a new I, it's about becoming a we. The new you, Christian, includes a we. Christianity is corporate. You have a new family now. You're part of a family. That means, very practically, Christians should join churches. We, we do this formally by submitting our discipleship and profession to the oversight of a congregation. We do this functionally throughout the week by by letting it shape to some measure our social calendars. So if your social calendar is not at all impacted by your membership in a church, something's missing. You want to say you want to grow as a Christian. Well, what is a Christian? A Christian is a we. So how do you grow as a Christian? Well, you take on the we. You pursue the we. You live out the we. If we get to the end of the service today and you feel like rushing out, maybe stop. Kind of have one conversation. Get to know somebody a little bit better. Let them get to know you a little bit better. Lesson three, non-Christian. You can join God's genealogy today by trusting in Christ. So anybody visiting this morning as a non-Christian, I, want you, I wonder what you think of your family of origin. Did you have a good family? Did you have a bad family? What do you think of your nation of origin? A good nation you feel like you come from? Bad nation? Mixed nation? What, what do you think about it? I told you I come from America. America's got mixed. I, I, got, I, got, I got ancestors fighting for the North, fighting for the South. What a mixed bag. What do you think of your nation, whether it's this one or another one? You know what? None of that has anything to do with whether or not you can join the nation of God, the family of God, through repentance and faith today. Whatever you come from, whoever you come from, whoever your people are, makes no difference whatsoever and whether or not you can join the people of God by uniting yourself to Christ, repenting of your sins and following after him. And what that means is if, if, if you follow after him, you should show up at a place like this, one of these assemblies, and you'll discover, ah, these are my people. I found them. And hopefully more and more we treat one another as my people, our people even as we fulfill our various duties to our families and to our nations. And if you have more questions about this, I'd be happy to talk to you afterwards, as would any Christian sitting here. Finally, lesson four, Christian, all the family inheritance and the nation's treasures of Israel belong to you. You have inherited them. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ. And if you belong to Christ, since he won it all, it's now yours. It's sort of like this. Picture yourself, I was an orphan, at an orphanage, 
And one day, an immaculately dressed, handsome, kind-looking man comes down to the orphanage and he adopts you. And he and his wife drive you home in a luxury car. He pulls up to a big iron gate with family crest on that gate and the, and the gates open and the security guard gives a little salute and you, you drive down this long driveway with symmetrically planted trees and finely shaped shrubbery and then you pull up to this garage and inside the garage you see all these fancy sports cars and antique cars and you continue to look around and you see the, the pool there and the, the the tennis court there, and beyond that, you see the vineyard and the orchard, and then you look at this, behold, this massive mansion. And you run inside, and there's brothers and sisters waiting for you, the orphan, to embrace you. They're now your brothers and sisters. And this wealthy man turns to you, and he says, all yours. Every square inch, now yours by adoption. That is Christianity. That is the gospel. That is the lesson of this genealogy. We're adopted into it so that everything it promises, heaven and earth itself, says Paul, are now yours in Christ. Kids, what are you looking for around the Christmas tree? What treasures? Adults, what treasures are you working for at work? The treasure promised by Christmas, by this genealogy, by Christianity, is God himself. We've received a down payment in the Holy Spirit. Who's better, the treasure or the one who created it? Creation or the creator? And he's promised himself to us now at Christmas, at the end of this genealogy. Let's pray. Father God, we are astounded. We are those orphans. We are hid away at an orphanage. And we have brought ourselves there by our own sin, by our own folly, rebellion against you. And yet you sent your son to collect us and to bring us home and to give us all that is his and to share with all that is yours. We give you thanks and praise this morning. Amen.